Climate change, give me a break. Climate change is a bunch of fossil fuel companies saying the world can end before we'll give up $10 billion of profit. That's their statement. And the answer is, for 320 million Americans, that's absolutely unacceptable. And what is progressive about saying that you want to protect the safety and health of American citizens? That isn't progressive. That's like the job. (laughs) Billionaire hedge fund executive, environmental activist, and impeachment supporter Tom Steyer is officially making a run for the White House and putting an aggressive climate action plan at the center of his campaign. In this episode, we speak with the newest entrant in the 2020 Democratic primary about why he entered the race. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a contributing editor at Green Tech Media. For a moment after the first Democratic primary debate, it appeared as though the field of presidential candidates could actually be thinning. That is, until liberal billionaire Tom Steyer entered the race. Pledging to spend $100 million on his bid and bringing the list of candidates up to 25. Steyer retired from hedge fund investing in 2012 to focus his efforts on political action and issue advocacy. That led to the founding of Next Gen America, a nonprofit and political action committee with progressive positions on climate change, immigration, and healthcare, as well as a multi state operation to mobilize young people to vote. Over the past two years, Steyer has also spent millions of dollars on an effort to impeach President Trump, which has put him at odds with some other Democrats, such as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Now, Steyer is officially in the Democratic primary, and he boosted his campaign this week with the launch of a bold climate action plan, the only climate action plan to effectively address the climate crisis with the urgency that it demands, says Steyer. Political Climate had a chance to sit down with the candidate for an in-depth interview at the Los Angeles Cleantech Incubator just a day after he announced his new climate plan. I spoke with Steyer along with Brandon Hurlbutt, our podcast Democrat, current partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners, and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under President Obama. Shane Skelton, our podcast Republican, partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and former energy advisor to Paul Ryan, was unable to attend, but we made sure to get in a question on his behalf. And with that, here is our interview. Mr. Steyer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I uh, really appreciate you being on here. And so, Julia, uh, do me a favor. Yeah. Please call me Tom. Absolutely. Nobody has called me Mr. Steyer for decades, I'm going to go with. Really? No. Wow. Okay, Tom. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, okay, so let's jump right in. As you know, it's a crowded Democratic primary field. And also, climate change is actually on the agenda more than it's ever been in previous elections, at the very least. So, why get into the race right now? What what did you feel was missing and that you wanted to shine a light on? Well, climate is a big reason, actually, Julia. You know, I put out a climate plan yesterday. And if you look at it, it's an attempt to really turn the page in terms of the climate dialogue and conversation in America from talking and planning to concrete, forceful action on day one. How are you going to do that? Okay. Thank you for asking me that question. There are three elements of the plan that I think are really different. One is that I would declare a state of emergency on day one. I would start to use the emergency powers of the president immediately, and I would give Congress 100 days to pass a Green New Deal. 
And if they didn't, then I'd start to move even more aggressively in terms of setting standards and moving money around. Because we have a very straightforward situation here. It's an emergency that threatens the health and safety of every American. So let's treat it that way. And let's use the power of the presidency to make every American safe. And by the way, to, <laughs> to make us richer, more prosperous, better employed and healthier. But, but that's not the point. That is true. But what's the point is we need to make ourselves safe. We want to get further into the plan. I have just a follow-up question of, did you feel like that was not being you know, communicated into the current plans from other candidates did not get it the way that you just described? Julie, I don't think there's any question about it. This is why I felt I had to run, is that if you follow the debates, people have really thoughtful policy positions. They have it on the Green New Deal. They have it in terms of healthcare. They have very thoughtful policy discussions, but none of them are likely to happen in any kind of foreseeable future. It's almost magical thinking. And what I've been saying is we shouldn't be talking about what we want. We should be talking about how are we going to get it? And what I'm saying is on day one, in terms of climate, I'm going to declare a state of emergency and start getting it. I think the other two things that are very different from what other people are talking about is one is emergency, two is this is going to be a policy driven by environmental justice, by the communities involved with an extreme attempt to bring from the ground up, from the grassroots. I'm a grassroots organizer. That's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. I believe in the wisdom of the American people. So rather than going in and telling them how we're going to do energy, it's going to be very much a grassroots operation, particularly for the communities that have been most punished by pollution. So that's low-income communities, communities of color, places where the worst plants, the worst air, the worst water have been located. And the other part of that is making sure that for the displaced workers and industries that are likely to decline or have to decline, we set aside $50 billion, but also a process of listening to them so that money is used well, so that you go in to make sure that they're not bearing the brunt of this transformation. Right. $50 billion to help, I guess, uh, people in fossil fuel industries. Is yes, that correct? Yeah. Specifically. That's an interesting piece. Yeah. And then the third thing is this. There is no way that this works unless there's global American leadership. This is a global problem. What Mr. Trump is doing with his America first, no coalition, no partners, is the opposite of what we need to do here. We need to reassert American global intellectual and moral leadership. And we cannot do that unless we've committed firmly to a policy for ourselves to make sure that we're cleaning up our own greenhouse gas emissions. So that is actually, we're talking about leading in the traditional American way of standing up for what's right, but we're also talking about leading technologically. I would triple the R&D budget here. Leading industrially, we have parts of this plan are talking about how to create financing on this on a local basis, how to make sure that the industrial uh, activity actually happens. We're talking about reasserting global American leadership in the context of the kind of coalition for what's important to do that we traditionally have led and which Mr. Trump has completely abandoned. That's what this plan is about. All three of those things are extremely different and absolutely essential if we're actually in the real world going to address this crisis. 
So, Tom, this is very exciting. I have a few follow-up questions. Number one, 100 days for a Green New Deal. What does a Green New Deal mean to you? Because it means a lot of different things to different people. Well, I, I think when I talk about the Green New Deal, I'm actually referring to the, um, I think it's about a five-page outline that AOC and Senator Markey put forward. And so if you've read that, and it's been, um, I think, significantly mischaracterized and vilified by a bunch of people on the right. Including people on our podcast. And let me say yeah. this. It, I, I don't think I agree with every part of it, but I agree definitely and wholeheartedly with the approach. And that's to say this. If we're going to rebuild this country, and we're talking about a $2 trillion over 10 years from the government in terms of infrastructure plus a ton more from the private sector. If we're going to rebuild this country, if we're going to transform the way we're literally powered, that is not a siloed issue. It's a horizontal issue that cuts across all of American society. And that, to me, is the biggest point about the Green New Deal, is to say this, this is going to affect how people are employed. This is going to affect our air and water. This is going to affect healthcare in America. This is going to be cross-cutting across American society as it must be, as it should be. And I think that what they're trying to do in the Green New Deal is to have a solution that fits the scope of the issue. And I think what, what has happened so far and what was going on in this campaign was people were talking about this as one of 19 policy issues, none of which, all of which people have great policy solutions for, but none of which are going to get done. One of the items in your plan is to call on Congress to fully fund the creation of a civilian climate corps, which would create one million jobs for young Americans, underemployed people, displaced workers, and others. So how do you get Congress to do that? As you know, it's a highly partisan time. So you talked about the doing piece. How do you get that done? Look, in terms of this plan, there are parts, of the, the, the essential parts of what we can do, we're going to do if we have to by emergency powers. But it's also true that we're, we need to go to the American people. Look, as a grassroots organizer, what I believe in is the American people. When we wanted to get this president impeached and removed, we went to the American people and got 8 million people to sign a petition. We've done grassroots organizing in terms of direct democracy, passing laws when legislatures wouldn't for clean energy. We've done that in California and outside California, and we continue to do it, going directly to the people. So when you say, how are we going to get actual movement in this country? It's going to be by going to the people and give it, sharing a vision of what has to happen. If you think about my campaign, I've said, look, I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about the hostile corporate takeover of our democracy by corporations and, what, and how to undo that. I put forward four structural changes. And climate. And in both of those cases, what I believe in is we have to go to the American people and give them a vision of both what the problem is and a concrete solution for how we're going to solve it. And here, if the American people don't buy into this, then how could it possibly happen? But I believe that I am telling absolutely straightforward truths that everybody can recognize. There isn't another side to this argument. You know, I love to, one of the statistics that I find the most misleading is that statistic people love to use that 97% of scientists agree that the climate is changing and it's caused by human activity. And I would say to you, okay, that implies that 3% don't. 
But if you actually look at the number of papers written about climate every year, there are probably 10,000, zero of which take the other side. There is no other side in science. There is no other side. I'm talking about urgency, the fact that it must deal at its root with human beings and be an environmentally justice-driven plan, and the fact that it's a global problem and requires America to be the indispensable country that we are in terms of global leadership. So to connect the dots just quickly. None of that's controversial. Yeah. No one, there's no other side to that, and no one's telling those truths. So do you think then getting the voters to care will then translate to them voting for representatives in Congress that also will act? And so it's a, it's a longer-term game like that. And the follow-up is, are you also going to support other candidates and other types of races as you run for president? So I'm not sure if you know this, Julia. So I'm just going to uh, mention, I started the largest grassroots organization in the United States, Next Gen America. Very familiar. You know, we did the largest youth voter mobilization in American history in 2018. We registered a million three people in 2016. We knocked on 10 million doors in 2018 with our partners in labor, 15 million doors in 2016. And I have guaranteed we will continue that work. I have guaranteed we will continue need to impeach. All of the grassroots efforts that I have been doing, I have promised I would fund and continue regardless of who the candidate is. Because from my standpoint, 2020 very clearly is going to be a generationally defining election. We're going to, and the way we'll know that is the turnout is going to dwarf all previous turnouts. If you look at 2018, which is a midterm election, two-thirds more Democrats showed up than in 2014. That's amazing, you guys. That's an absolutely astonishing fact. 35 million Democrats voted in 2014, and I think the number was 59. Can you imagine how much of a change? We're talking about people understanding that their future is at stake. Look, if we don't get climate right, nothing else matters. And so I think young people understand that. If you think about the three points I made, urgency, environmental justice, global. I think they understand we have a president who is actively working against all three, is actively working to make the safety and health of Americans much worse, is actively working to harm Americans. If you think of him in his role, the most important role of presidents to be the commander in chief, to make sure Americans are safe. And I think he thinks of that in a, in a, in a context that's at least 50 years behind the times. This is the threat to ourself, our, our safety and health bigger than any other. And he's actively working for our enemies. It's incredible. He is going to run against climate in 2020. He had that great environmental press conference, though. <laughs> he really tried to put itself on the map. Brandon. So I'm glad that you talked about your work with young people. What specifically can you do to turn them out in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan? So the question was, what can we do in, in the upper Midwestern states that a lot of people think are going to be the swing states in the presidential, also in the House races, yes. and possibly in the Senate races? Yes. So let me just say that we're in all those states, that we didn't just get in all those states. We've been in all those states for, gosh, probably five years, that we're in there now. We don't go in just before the election. We organize in those states 12 months a year. What we found in those states is that young people there are no different from the young people every place else. They have the exact same issues. 
And they, the issue with young people is not to convince them on the issues. The, the issue with young people is to convince them to vote. This generation is the largest generation in American history, bigger than the boomers. Prior to 2018, they were voting at half the rate of other Americans. In 2014, the last midterm election, they voted at 21%. One out of five people under 30 actually voted. That is not a democracy. Let's be clear. The largest, most diverse, most progressive generation in American history voted one out of five. And we asked hundreds of thousands of them why. We're on 420 college campuses. And what they said was always the same. The system doesn't work. Neither party tells the truth. Neither party addresses my issues. There's no difference. Why would I vote? And so in 2018, we chose 38 Republican districts, which we thought could be flipped to try and flip. And they were in 11 swing states that we were already in, including the ones you mentioned, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio. We went to do a program of registration, engagement, participation in those districts to, con to talk to kids about what's important to talk about what the differences were. In those districts, the turnout went from 18%. It started lower than the national average to 41%. And there was a bump overall. The basic bump nationwide for people under 30 went from 20 to 30, roughly. Ours went from 18 to 41. So all I'm saying is, this is an organizing question. It's both things. It's the practical part about saying to young people, here's where your polling place is. Do you have a plan to vote? Do you have a way of getting there? The practical stuff, but it's also a vision of why does it matter? Why is your vote so important? Which we, you know, I have no problem talking to a 25-year-old and saying, your vote is so important. Your, your generation's vote is critical to your future, but also to the critical to the future of every single person you know Yes, and love. agreed. And on the tactical piece of this, Trump is still vastly outspending all of the other Democratic presidential candidates on digital. What is your plan to alleviate that? So, Brandon, I don't know if, you know, one of the things, let me talk for a second about what it means to talk to people under 30 or 35. I think... Present. <laughs> well, I, and, well, you're a perfect example then, Julia, because I think people have a, a sense in their head that what we do is set up a table at a residential college and talk to people as they go from the dining hall to the gym or from the gym to their uh, dormitory. And we do do that on 420 campuses. We make sure we do it in community colleges specifically and historically black colleges and universities every place we can. But most people under 35 are not going to a residential college the vast proportion. So that means we have to get reach them where they are, which often means online. So we spend a ton of time trying to reach people under 35 online, using digital communications, using every single thing we can do to get their attention, to get into a dialogue, to get them aware of how important they are to the system and to their own futures. I'm definitely being tracked by your campaign. <laughs> My Instagram feed is blowing up. <laughs> so, but, but I'm just saying, that's where young people live. We right. also do door knocks in, in places that have high proportions of young people. So we're going to do whatever it takes. Look, Mr. Trump can do whatever he wants to talk to young people. They can't stand him. Across the country, in the reddest states in the country. If you look at Utah, no. 
If you look at Oklahoma, no. There is, if you look at Texas, no. Young people have rejected his, everything that he stands for, honest to goodness, overwhelmingly. I, I think young people, gosh, I think it was something like, I can do the math, 44-point spread for people under 30, D to R, 72-28. I don't care what he spends online. I've got four kids who are under 35. He can spend a million bucks a kid. He's not getting a vote from them. I have a question about um, campaigning on your principles. As you said, the message is so important, inspiring people. Getting to the political tactics, there's a concern, I think, on, among Democrats about how progressive to be versus how moderate to be to win some of those key states. And you have, again, made a point of campaigning on your principles on climate, but also, I think, on protecting dreamers, on impeachment of Donald Trump for, for his lack of leadership, as you describe it. So can a progressive Democrat win this election? And if so, well, why? Well, Julia, I know that people traditionally use that metric, but I actually think it's the wrong metric. To me, the question is, Americans are looking, and this is a cliche, and I don't actually like this word, but it's the one people use, authenticity. Someone who will tell the truth, even if you disagree with him or her sometimes. And so, you know, I thought the point about impeachment was we were telling the truth. Now everybody knows it's the truth. Even the Republicans know he's a crook. He's committed high crimes and misdemeanors. He's unfit for the office. What we were saying originally was true, and people were mocking us. I think the question about progressiveness is a question about telling the truth as opposed to trying to mix the difference, you know, sort of cut the difference. And I'll give you an example. I have a friend. Look, I was in the private sector for decades. I built a big business. I have a friend who is um, also a business person who I would describe as a moderate Democrat, a nice guy. And we were doing something, I think it was in 2018 when we were organizing young people and um, also pushing for impeachment. And I said to him, David, why do you never support me? And he said, you're too, you're too progressive. And I said to him, well, let me ask you this. Is it that I believe in science or is it that I believe in acting on the science that I hear? Which part of that is progressive? I don't think either parts of that's progressive. I think if you don't tell the truth, that's not moderate. That's dishonest. I think Americans understand. We agree on the solutions to these problems. 90% of Americans want mandatory background checks on every gun purchase, and we don't have it. That's not a question about progressive. 70% of NRA members want mandatory background checks on every gun purchase. What's going on in the United States is the people are not getting what they want. The, these corporations have bought the democracy. I've been trying for 10 years successfully to organize coalitions of ordinary citizens to take back the democracy, to beat the corporations, and to win at every level. And that's what we're talking about here. Climate change, give me a break. Climate change is a bunch of fossil fuel companies saying the world can end before we'll give up $10 billion of profit. That's their statement. And the answer is, for 320 million Americans, that's absolutely unacceptable. And what is progressive about saying that you want to protect the safety and health of American citizens? That isn't progressive. That's like the job. <laughs> that's great. Um, can we circle back really quickly on your plan? I just want to dig in a little bit more. Do. Hopefully you can paint a picture for our listeners. How do you see this industrial mobilization that you want to happen 
the federal investment and then private sector investment all coming together to make that happen. Look, we're doing a bunch of different things in this. One of the things we're doing is setting standards. So when you look at why California has really clean buildings, starting in 1970, we had building standards about energy use. And we've made them more and more progressively better and more and more progressively efficient buildings. And lo and behold, the buildings here are fantastic and fun to work in. I mean, we're in a building right now that is an incubator. But if you walk around, I'd love to work in this building. It's a treat on many levels because there are, there are rules about standards about what, how you have to build. And that is private sector money living up to standards set by the government for the good of the citizens. If you look at a renewable portfolio standard, which is saying energy generation is going to be this much clean by this much date, that's private sector investment to meet a standard set by the government that benefits every citizen in the state. And I was just hearing you guys, just so you know, solar bids from the Mojave Desert that started with one, under two cents a kilowatt hour, boom. I mean, that's a just for people who are listening who don't think in those terms, fossil fuels start at four or five. That means these guys can do solar plus storage and have it start with a four or five. So, boom. So, that's a standard. You know, when we insist on mileage per, per gallon or we insist on number of years, that's something where we set a standard and the private sector has to meet it and can meet it and will be more profitable for meeting it. But then there's a the question about infrastructure. I mean, we're going to have to build stuff as a, as a society, and that's why we set aside $2 trillion over 10 years to do the kind of smart, green infrastructure that we're going to need to transform our society that will create all of this, will create literally millions of net jobs, and we want to make sure that they're good-paying, organized jobs that pay a living wage. And we're darned if it's not going to happen that way because that's, also, that's the part about the Green New Deal. So is that the federal government giving money to build factories, like loans or no. direct grants? How does that work? Roads. The grid. You know, there is a we have to rebuild this country. That's okay. You have to rebuild stuff anyway. People act like, oh, my God, you have to rebuild the country. It's like, yeah, we always have to rebuild the country. It's just a question of the schedule on when you rebuild it and how long th things last before they wear out. We all know that the infrastructure in the United States is due for a major rebuild. They keep saying it's going to happen, right? That's supposed to be the supposed area bipartisan agreement, and yet we don't see any action. So, like, I think a lot of people are wary of, like, who could possibly get that action through? Well, you know who I go with? Someone who for 10 years has beaten companies and made things happen, and second of all, who would declare a state of emergency on day one. That's the whole point. You know, every, this Using is not a tool. plan. This right. is not an idea that we're hoping that will happen sometime in the 2030s. We can't do that. We literally can't do that. Does the state of emergency uh, work differently than a regular uh, other kind of executive order? For instance, we yes, saw with the Clean Power Plan There's, how that was just repealed by Trump when he got no, in office. This is different. What, a state of emergency it gives you, I think it's, I was looking at the legal stuff to, before I said this, it gives you like 126 special powers. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I know. Some of them are pretty Avenger obscure style. and would be very relevant in 1796. <laughs> That's not true. But, yeah. but I mean, the most famous state of emergency, honestly, was Lincoln in the Civil War. You know, I, but, but it's basically saying 
there's something going on where the normal workings of democracy may not work fast enough to protect the safety of Americans. And therefore, we're, the president is going to take extraordinary measures to make sure that Americans are safe. That's where we are. Not to do that is to, is to say what we've been saying for a long time. This is a crisis. Let's do nothing about it at the federal level. I mean, at the states, people are doing things. At the municipal level, people are doing things. But at the federal level, it's not only people are not doing things. This administration is undoing things that have already been done. It is working against our, the interests of every single American, except those who own huge oil and gas or coal companies. I know we've addressed this, but I just would love to get the specifics out there, because this was a point that our Republican co-host made on a previous show that Democrats are going to be in trouble because Tom Steyer will divert attention away from his other work to work on a campaign and, and money specifically. So I'd love to know how much money are, are you dedicating? I love when Republicans tell me what I'm doing. I love <laughs> right. when they tell me who I am. I love when they tell me who my motives Very are. illuminating. It's so helpful for someone who's never met me <laughs> right. to tell me what well, I'm doing and why. So I love you to take them on. And so... Can you put any numbers around the support you are giving for other for next gen and get out the vote and other candidates specifically in other races? Well, perhaps? other candidates in other races, there no, are no other candidates in other races. And that's not really what we do. What we really do is organize. You know, what we really do is we do a campus program, you know, a youth program, people under 35 in what we consider the swing states. And, you know, that moves around a little. But if you think about it, the swing states in America include usually the swing presidential states, the swing House states, and the swing Senate states. So, you know, in California, believe it or not, in 2018, there were seven swing congressional districts in the state of California. We were in every one for over a year. They all flipped. If you had said to me we were going to go seven, and we didn't do eight, we did seven. And if you'd said to me, you're going to go seven for seven in California. I would have said, <laughs> I'll take five. But there was something going on, which is this president's a threat to every American and people are aware of that. And so there was an issue here. You know, so we will be in those states and we will be in those states the way we were in 2018 and 2016 at least. And, you know, we do door knocks with our partners in the labor movement in seven states. We will be in those seven states. I've already told those guys. We're going to be in there with you guys. We're going to, you know, do our share. We do a lot of other grassroots organizations. It's organizing. It's, it's not specifically candidate. We know where we're going to be. We don't always know who the candidate's going to be. And so next step is organizing, I guess, to get on the debate stage. Is that the next that's For what you're me, working toward? Yes. I've, you know, I feel like. If I'm not meeting the standards to be on the debate stage, then I'm not, my message isn't getting through. But let me say, we, there, you have to get four polls of 2%. I've been doing this for two weeks. We have two polls of, of 2%. Wow. So great. we have one in Iowa, and yesterday we got one in South Carolina. I've been doing this for literally two weeks. So obviously, so, the message that I'm trying to deliver is getting through at a level, honestly, that's sooner, better, faster than I would have expected. So we'll see how it goes. Look, this is a journey, but, and you should tell your Republican friend, I am doing this because I feel there's something really wrong. 
And if you look at my climate plan, it's a perfect example. We actually need to act. If you look at when I'm talking about reforming government and pushing power back to the people and beating the corporations, we're not getting a new healthcare system in the United States of America unless we beat the corporations. The, the healthcare plan is important. The nuances are important. I can talk about them. I care about them. But none of them matter in the real world unless we beat the corporations and, ch and change the structure of our government and push the power back to the people. And so that's the only two things I wanted to... I, I feel like I don't want to talk about 19 policy areas. I want to talk about the two things we can do to dramatically improve our country on behalf of the people. And those are two things that I have worked on successfully for a decade from the, as an outsider, getting things done around this country. And that is exactly what I want to do. And that's exactly why I'm running. Well, we look forward to watching how it all unfolds. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Total pleasure. What a great day. I got to run, Tom, but uh, will you commit on this show to choosing as your vice president, Uday Rohatki? <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, we should spend more time together. He works at my firm. And that is the end of our show for this week. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to Political Climate. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts. And if you haven't yet, we hope that you'll give us a review. You can also tweet us at poly underscore climate. We'd love to hear from you. And if you're wondering who Uday is, that is Tom Steyer's former policy director, also apparently a coworker of Brandon Hurlbutt's. So it is a small world. Finally, thanks to our producer, Victoria Simon. Always appreciate your help. And with that, until next week. <laughs>